Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for August 18th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, big show tonight. For the second time, we're having one of our biggest guests we've ever had, uh, Bill Snyder of uh, CNN fame for so many years on Inside Politics. He's a professor now at George Washington University. There's probably 10 other things that he's done that are just amazing. And, Catherine, you're in for a treat because I think you missed the first time he's here. So this will be the first time you get to ask him questions. Yeah, and isn't it George Mason? George Mason, thank you for correcting me. I think maybe he went yeah, to – he taught at both schools. He's taught over out in California and different things. Yeah, thank you for correcting me, um, George Mason. And uh, But that will come up in about 20 minutes. Uh, but until then, something on the more than decade-long kudzu vine we have never discussed is um, Greenland, the politics, the environment, the, the weather – um, anything about it, but this week it got put into the um, political stratosphere uh, because there's been uh, reports, and I think there's now been multiple reports, that the Trump administration has looked at what it would take to buy Greenland. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where I don't think it really, you know, going in had a political slant, you know, like some issues – there's pretty much what you're going to say. That's where Democrats are going to stand. That's where Republicans are going to stand. I think this is one of those issues where going in, there's not a default position. And if it was a Democratic uh, president looking at it, one group would feel one way and the opposite. And some people now may look the other way. And I'll tell you where I stand on it right off. I kind of want to see the math. I want to see the process behind it. Like if it's just Donald Trump, you know, stroking his ego because he's a real estate man and he wants to buy something to buy something, then I'm probably not really on board with this. But if somebody said these are the strategic and economic reasons for doing it, you know, I would be apt to look at it a little harder. Now, I have some other questions environmentally based on what's happening in our planet and what's going to happen to Greenland. But let me kind of um, get y'all's thoughts on it now. Catherine, when you heard this news about America looking into buying Greenland, what were your thoughts? Well, I thought it was kind of ridiculous since it's already a possession of Denmark, I think. Um, I, I, I don't see I, – I, I guess I agree with you that if there's some strategic uh, explanation for acquiring it, then okay, but – I believe it's probably just a uh, a natural uh, desire for um, our president to want to acquire some kind of property for future development, be it yeah. resorts or 
some kind of commercial or industrial um, development. But but if if there is an argument that it serves a strategic purpose, then I would I might not roll my eyes quite so hard. Yeah, and as far as it, it is a, a, the property of Denmark, but I mean the Louisiana Purchase was property of France. Uh, the Northwest Territory was property of Britain. Alaska was property of Russia. You know, for hundreds of years now, everywhere has been claimed by somewhere. Um, so that happens. It, it just, you know, what else is behind this? Tim, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, it uh, for a little historical um, background, I believe, that the last time the the U.S. government seriously looked at the possibility of acquiring Greenland was in 1947. And the context of that is that, well, we had just come out of the Second World War. We were entering into a Cold War with our formal ally, uh, the Soviet Union, Uh, the atomic age was beginning, Uh, a country like Denmark, which had been occupied by the Nazis, was practically bankrupt, as was most of Europe. It was thought that we could perhaps acquire Greenland and uh, put sack bases and and that sort of thing there for military purposes and uh, not, uh, we could watch the Arctic, we could watch the Mid-Atlantic, and more, most importantly, we could watch the going zone in Europe as it was recovering from the war and the Soviets were trying to expand. Now, in this case, i I, I got to feel that, that Trump perhaps is, is thinking this could be uh, his Abraham Lincoln moment or something like Lincoln – Per, uh, you know the the Seward's uh, buying Alaska in the late 1860s, you know, and stuff like that, and and he could be a president that expanded America and and, and that sort of thing. But the 56,000 residents of uh, along with Denmark uh, have said it's not for sale and. As a result, the idea has drawn derision from most people, but but absolutely in order to cover the fact that this president even suggested such a thing. There are some, I've noticed on the conservative side of the media especially, who are talking about what a good idea it is. But there's a politician over in Denmark that summed up my feelings when he said that it's the final proof that Trump has gone crazy. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that that we are talking about this, it, it shows how absurd the time, the era that we're in actually is now. I mean, imagine. Again, I hate to bring up uh, President Obama with with the imagine what they would have said about him. But just imagine President Obama all of a sudden musing, maybe we should buy Greenland. Imagine what the other side would be saying uh, about that. They would be going nutty. 
Yeah, and and to me that is one thing that we have to, as citizens, guard against is you have to look at an idea as an idea um, either way because some things don't have a natural default political position. Um, and, and I am interested in how this came about. I mean, did they dust off a policy paper from the Truman administration that hadn't been updated in 70 years? You know, that's a problem. <laughs> now, is this something that somebody, let's say a policy analyst that started 98 under Clinton, worked through George W. Bush, worked through President Obama, still works in their position, you know, they've had a 20-plus year career, and they have to look at all these contingencies, and they have a policy paper they update on the purchasing of Greenland. Now, that is something that would be, you know, meritable to look at and discuss. Now, the questions I had when I thought about it, I was like, well, you know, we hear just this past week the um, uh, a glacier in Iceland has melted to the point in which it's no longer classified as a glacier. It's called OK. So Greenland has a lot of ice. Now, I tried to do a research, and I got time to do a little research, not nearly enough, and trying to find out, you know, how much of Greenland is covered in ice, and under that ice, how much of that is land, and how much of that is water. And then also, when the uh, ice does melt and melts there and other places, how much of that land will remain above water? Because here's the thing, if you're going to spend – you know, trillions of dollars, I'm guessing. I, I don't know what the purchase price is. Um, what are you getting down the road? In 50 years, if half of it's underwater, then that's a stupid real estate purchase, and, and Mr. Art of the Deal needs to look at his, his deal. Also, the purchase price is important. You know, if, Green, if Denmark said, hey, we'll sell it to you for a million dollars, sure, buy it if, if it's, you know, a quadrillion dollars? No way. I mean, so the purchase price would be a, a, a factor. But I wonder if Donald Trump even had the interest and attention span to uh, look at the ramifications of what will Greenland look like in 25 years after some effects of global warming that can't be reversed, even if we did everything today, happen. Catherine, do you think any of that got analyzed? No, but but I have to say that if I if we had a uh, climate change um, advocate in the White House, or not advocate, but who supported uh, and believed in climate change and was tr- trying to do something about it, and felt like Greenland was a strategic um, acquisition in order to um, do something about climate change that would be different i what i imagine is that one day uh president trump said what we need to do is expand uh our uh reach we need more land and so th- so there his little minions went scampering off to try to find something to buy or to acquire and uh the only thing they could come up with was greenland and so that's – I mean, I don't think there was any thought behind behind it other than this seemed like something that would get some, get him some attention and uh, divert uh, attention from something, from everything else that's going on. 
Yeah, and and that's what he's good at. I heard uh, David Axelrod's podcast saying that Donald Trump governs by self-emolulation. He sets himself on fire and says, everybody look at me, and uh, therefore they don't look at other things. And I know Robert Biro makes that point. Uh, Robin Biro makes that a point a lot of times when he comes on our show. Um, Tim, uh, one thing before I get to my question for you is I, I think of one purchase that was never made that was looked at that kind of would have been good if it was made in hindsight. And Franklin Pierce tried to buy Cuba, and had that happened, no Cuban Missile Crisis, no Bay of Pigs. Um, you probably would have another state because of how close Cuba is, closer than uh, Puerto Rico um, to our mainland. Um, but my question to you is, let's say Denmark said, Here's the price. It's a pretty reasonable price, but we have a caveat. We can't do this to our citizens, you know, our Great Danes that live in um, uh, Greenland. If you buy this property, they have to be ratified as the 51st state. We know that, you know, Greenland makes Wyoming look like a shopping mall on Black Friday. There's nobody there, but nevertheless, they get two senators, they get a representative. And everybody knows they'll immediately be Democrats. They might be to the left of the Democratic Party. Who knows? But you got to do it. Do you think the Republicans would still think this is such a great idea? Well, I'm hoping not too many Republicans think it's a great idea. And, of course, they wouldn't go for it if that were the case. And it would be the case because you have either the native um, uh, Indian population i believe they're inuits and 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 you have the danes who are are to to the left of anything we have in this country of course it would be um that way and 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 it would be absurd to talk of greenland the world's largest island but with only a population of 56,000 as a state not to mention that over half of their annual operating budget has to come in the form, basically, of a cash gift from, from Denmark that has to keep them up because they don't really have anything much there to do anything with, and they they really can't control the weather yet, thank goodness. Uh, and, and why would we need to do any of that anyway? I mean, <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was something that some policy analyst can explain a lot better and still maybe come down on the side of no, but they'll probably have more interesting arguments than Donald it, Trump would with, I want it because I can get it. Uh, uh, here, here's the deal. I take two things away from this. Number one, uh Everybody said it's not for sale, and the other thing they said was, you're crazy. Well, that sounds to me like this whole thing is just a figment of Trump's imagination that he came up with out of nowhere. He probably saw some documentary or something Hmm. about Greenland, thought, man, that'd be a great place to do something, or maybe we could find gold, bunch of oil there, blah, 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 or, you know, something. Yeah. But it, it, it's it's nuttiness. It's absurd. We've already got a major military base there anyway, so the military wouldn't uh, gain anything from it. Uh, so <laughs> why do it? 
I don't know. And this may fall right off the radar in a week or two. And unfortunately for the 56,000 residents of Greenland, we won't discuss that again. Well, guys, it's kind of a good segue now to uh, just a little bit early, but great for us, for our guest. Uh, welcome back to the second time to the Kudzu Vine, Mr. William Snyder. Welcome. Thank you. All right, great to have you back on. Um, well, we were discussing the Greenland thing, but we're going to move on to our, uh, you know, national topics with you that we had planned out. And the first one was this past week was the Iowa State Fair. Uh, looks like one of the more fun political events there are. Um, if you've covered I've it, you there. can tell us about it. Uh, tell, well, just start off by Tell us about you hadn't been there. Oh, unfortunately, neither have I, but it looks like great fun. Um, I have been but there. My question, no, I have. You have been, been there. I'm sorry. Yes, I have. <laughs> well, I was there a couple of years ago, and they were selling well, deep-fried Twinkies. And I went on television, <laughs> and I said, I have to try this. And I bought a deep-fried Twinkie, and I took one bite, and I announced to the world, ladies and gentlemen, a deep-fried Twinkie is also called a donut. <laughs> yes. Well, well, that kind of got me into my first thing, uh, my first question, and that is traditionally the race has been very sequential. You start off with Iowa, then you go to uh, New Hampshire, then you move to South Carolina, now Nevada's in there, and, and you kind of go step by step by step like it's a game board. But increasingly, our politics is more national, and you get on these large CNN and MSNBC uh, debates, and everything's national, and there's more national polls than there are state-by-state, seemingly. But my question to you as someone that really knows politics from the past many cycles, do you think it's still going to be step-by-step-by-step, or has the um, game really changed? Well, what's changed is that every single step along the way has national repercussions. That's particularly important for 2020 because what Democrats are looking for is a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. So if someone shows up strongly in Iowa or New Hampshire, wins those races, then the national polls are suddenly going to show that person can beat Donald Trump, and that could change the whole national complexion of the race. Iowa is a different kind of game, however. Iowa is a caucus. New Hampshire and most other states are primaries. What's the difference? Think about it this way. A primary is an election. A caucus is a meeting. It takes a lot more commitment to attend a caucus where you vote publicly. You have to stand up in front of your friends and neighbors and God and everybody and say, I'm here to support Pete Buttigieg or something. You've got to stand up and do that publicly. Most ordinary people don't want to do that. So a caucus like Iowa gets only the activists. It gets the committed voters who are willing to stand up and say whom they're supporting in front of everybody they know. And that's just not a normal thing to do. Yes. Well, well, then that brings on another question. National polling has Joe Biden winning uh, the national race and many of the states. But it looks like his supporters are just maybe a little more casual, um, active politically active than a lot of the other candidates, and they seem to have been more hardcore activists in their basis. How do you think Which that that dynamic will play in Iowa? Yeah. It will not play in Iowa. Uh, he's worried about Iowa. A lot of his supporters are worried about Iowa. His kind of supporters are not the people who go to caucuses. 
They are casual supporters. They're not activists. There's no transformational image like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the people who support him support him mainly because they think he can beat Donald Trump. And at the moment, the polls show he's got the best chance of beating Donald Trump. Uh, so I don't expect Joe Biden to do particularly well in Iowa. He should do better in New Hampshire because it's a, it's a primary, which is an election, and gets a lot more people to turn out. The problem he faces in New Hampshire is a little bit different. He's got two candidates who are neighbors of New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders comes from Vermont, and he beat Hillary Clinton's hands down in New Hampshire because New Hampshire voters regard him as a neighbor and they know him very well. And the other candidate is Elizabeth Warren, who's from Massachusetts. And most of the people in New Hampshire have ties to Massachusetts and watch Boston television and read the Boston Globe. So Warren and Sanders are both familiar to the voters of New Hampshire. Biden is too, but not quite as close as they are. Yes, and one final question about Iowa. Um, I, I guess it's in some ways could be termed the Jimmy Carter strategy, getting into Iowa and just staying there and and almost uh, taking up residence. And there's a few candidates that have spent more time there that are not in the top five. I think Beto O'Rourke's in there, um, and then there's some other folks that have been there more days. Do you think that will pay off in the end, or do you have to have more of a national presence to seem legitimate to the voters of the Iowa caucus. That used to pay off. It certainly paid off for Jimmy Carter in 1976, but that was a wholly different kind of race. Uh, in 1976, Carter won because he had a particular message. The message was morality. I will never lie to you. A lot of voters wanted to hear that because we had just gone through Watergate. And to have a candidate who said, I'll never lie to you, unlike Richard Nixon, was very welcome. So in Iowa... Even if you spend a lot of time there, people want to know, what's your message? I think Biden has a message which could work in Iowa. His message is, I'm a normal guy. I would bring us back to traditional politics. I'm not like Donald Trump, who's a very abnormal, exceptional kind of candidate. And I think what voters see in Joe Biden is a return to normalcy. If he can turn that into a message, he may do very well in New Hampshire. Yes, and my final question is not about Iowa. It's about a candidate that finally um, dropped out of the race. We still have over 20, but uh, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper decided to uh, drop out of the presidential race, run um, for Colorado Senate, and there was a poll released that actually sh showed him defeating Cory Gardner. I believe the poll was actually taken before he dropped out, but that was released right about the time he did. Um, kind of given an analysis of that move well <clears throat> he wasn't getting anywhere in the presidential race uh, look the presidential race hasn't even started the first votes won't even be cast until february 3rd in iowa but he wasn't collecting a lot of money the reason why candidates get out early in the game is they see that they're not picking up a lot of contributions and it's going to cost them a fortune and they could go into debt and it's quite likely they're not going to do very well. So he saw the handwriting on the wall, and he decided, you know what? I'm known in Colorado. I'm popular there. And in a Democratic year, which 2020 might be, in a swing state like Colorado, he could win, and he could have a national career. The, the interesting thing is that when um, – I keep calling him Hassenpfeffer – when Hickenlooper dropped out of the race, <laughs> when Hickenlooper dropped out of the race, I started reading all these articles about Beto O'Rourke. And they all were saying, will Beto O'Rourke do the same thing? 
because you know he's not doing any he's not doing much better than Hickenlooper in the presidential contest, and a lot of people hope he'll drop out and run against John Cornyn in Texas. That would be a way to continue his national reputation. Yes, and I actually think then the next week or two, if uh, you know how he kind of reacted in uh, El Paso, and then what he did the other day in our like two days ago in Arkansas, if that gets him some traction, he may stay in. But if that didn't get any traction, I think you're right. The Hickenlooper strategy might be the way to go. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. Last time you were on with us, Catherine uh, was on assignment, so to speak. So this will be the first time you get get questions from Catherine Smith. All right. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for being on. I'm sorry I missed you the last time. I can't remember what was going on, but <coughs> – Excuse me. I'm going to switch a little bit, and I want to talk for just a minute about guns, if you don't mind. I'm sorry, about what, guns? About guns. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> um, you What's know, there's the been a lot of these mass shootings and a lot of talk about gun control and gun reform and all this stuff. And for about, I guess, about 20 years, I've been saying to my friends, why don't we try to control the ammunition instead of the guns? We're never going to get all these guns out of people's hands, but if we either tax or license or have minimums on ammunition, we might be able to make some headway. And just recently I saw, I can't remember who said it, someone said it, uh, I saw it on Twitter, some, some famous person said, well, maybe we should can think about controlling ammunition. So I know you that um, you're, the think tank that you work with has done some work in um, gun safety. So what is your what do you think about that idea? Is it crazy? It's not crazy. It's been discussed in the past. The problem is uh, the gun rights activists, the National Rifle Association and other organizations like that, are just as resistant to ammunition control as they are to gun control. They see that as a back door to getting gun control. So they're determined to resist that just as strongly. Uh, and you're going to run into the same problems with that issue as you do with gun control. So we have to – we just have to get – we just have to get the Senate back. <laughs> well, that's one thing. And the White House. Right now, the outlook for gun control isn't too bad. And the first test, the real test, is going to come this year – this year, 2019, in November in Virginia, you have a statewide election where Democrats are desperate to try to get control of the legislature. Virginia's the most Democratic southern state. It's got two Democratic senators who are the only Democrats in the, from the South in the Senate, except the one from Alabama, and you have a Democratic governor. But you still have very narrow Republican majorities in the legislature. The legislative election is in November. Gun control is a big issue in Virginia. That will be a very big test case of the power of the gun issue and whether it's really changed since the tragedies in Dayton and El Paso. Okay. Well, that, well we're, we're, as always, we keep an eye on Virginia, so we'll keep a special extra eye on it over that. And now I may yep. have another question for you, but I'm going to pass it to Tim for now. Thank you so much. Okay. Good evening, Mr. Snyder. Uh, glad you could be with us tonight. Obviously, the election of Donald Trump uh, threw out uh, a lot of preconceptions we had about 
I don't know, certain rules and etiquette of politics. That's probably the understatement of the year. <laughs> and it yes. actually has led many to believe that certain rules just no longer apply in the Trump era. Now, one rule that is always held by many is that if a sitting president presides over an economic downturn during an election season, then that president will lose re-election. We, we saw it before with Bush 41 and with Carter, among others. The thought, I guess, is that people vote their pocketbook first. But will this hold with Donald Trump if we have a recession? Would even he pay at the polls, or, or is he just beyond that? I think he would pay at the polls. Of course, it's never been really tested. Uh, but the, uh, you mentioned the first President Bush, Jimmy Carter, both were limited to one term because the economy went bad when they were president. And if the economy does undergo a downturn in the next year, I think President Trump will be in a lot of trouble. For one thing, uh, the people who voted for him were mostly whites without a college degree who are uh, wage earners and who would be really hurt by another recession. So I think they would be very disillusioned. President Trump knows this, and he's been trying to give a pep rally on the economy every time he has a, a big rally in one of these states. He did it the other day, and he had the most curious uh, message for the voters. He said, and I quote, you have no choice but to vote for me if there's an economic downturn. Because he said, if, if I get thrown out of office, the stock market is going to crash, and you'll be worse off. I've never heard a candidate make that kind of uh, answer before. You have no choice but to vote for me. A lot of people may, may wonder, what's he talking about? Of course we have a choice, and they're likely to take the alternative choice if the economy goes into a tailspin, as some of the economic signs are pointing to right now. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you something just between me and you and all of our listeners, Mr. Snyder. I, I've been wondering – what this man's been talking about since he descended that escalator in 2015. But <laughs> you know, Now, in such an economic downturn, could we see a scenario where the president actually faces a credible challenge within his own party, say from a guy like Mark Sanford, or does Trump have such a tight control now within the Republican Party that, that even that could not happen? I think it's unlikely. First of all, it's getting late. Second of all, the, his opponent would have to raise a lot of money. There are a couple of people like Stanford, Bill Weld, who are toying with the idea. I think Weld has already said he's going to run, but what's he got to lose? He's not in office anymore. The reason why Trump has so much power over the Republican Party is he has his own army. His army is a large proportion of the Republican electorate, not all of it, but maybe half of it. It's a populist following. It's mostly white men who don't have a college degree, and they're very angry, and they're very right-wing in their views. He also has a lot of evangelical support. I once asked an evangelical, how do you possibly support a man like Donald Trump who doesn't reflect your values or your lifestyle? And the answer I got was interesting. He said, he delivers and I said, what does he deliver? And the evangelical said, he has delivered the thing we've been praying for for 50 years, the Supreme Court of the United States. And we are not going to abandon him no matter what he does. So I think his army will be there, and his army will punish 
any Republican politician who opposes Donald Trump, and they know that. Look what happened to Mark Sanford. He was defeated in the Republican primary when he ran for re-election. So he's terrified most Republican politicians, and they're unlikely to come out against him. I want to ask you one more question about the general election, then I'll pass it back to David, and I may also have a question later if there's time. But we something that's really been weighing heavily on me, we, we, we know from reading our history that there have been several nasty presidential campaigns. Uh, I myself, you know, distinctly recall viewing Nixon employ his southern strategy and what that meant and then i saw the darkness of what they did with the break-in at the democratic national headquarters and bugging psychiatrist's office and the general crookery that went on there and then you can read about like the election of 1824 and the mudslinging reached uh historic levels but we have Donald Trump in the White House now. Are, are we about to see the darkest campaign this country has ever seen? Well, we've seen some pretty dark campaigns. I mean, back in the 19th century, you were referring to, you had a lot of nonsense going on in campaigns, a lot of trickery. I remember there was one candidate who was attacked because they said uh, he, was the, he was a Democrat, and they called him the candidate of rum Romanism and rebellion. Uh, that was right after the Civil War. Uh, you, we've had a lot of skullduggery in campaigns. One of the nastiest I can recall was 2004 between George W. Bush and John Kerry, when the Bush campaign implied that John Kerry would, uh, if he became president, he would uh, turn the country over to terrorists. That the, that you would all all Americans would face a, the threat of injury or death because he would be weak as a president. It was a very ugly campaign. Well, we've had a number of ugly campaigns. This is, because of Donald Trump and who he is, unlike any other politician in the past for running for president, I think this is likely to be the nastiest. The reason is very simple. Donald Trump is doing something that no other president has ever done. He is not just dividing the country. A lot of presidents have done that. But he is deliberately dividing the country. Someone like Barack Obama divided the country. Franklin Roosevelt divided the country. But that wasn't their strategy. They didn't set out to divide the country. Trump is doing it purposely and intentionally, and no other president has ever done that. Hmm. Goodness. With that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? All right, one more quick question, and I'll let Catherine and Tim ask another quick one as well. Uh, you mentioned Alabama Senator Doug Jones, probably the most – improbable of all the hundred senators as far as the political dynamics of his state. Um, he won because of Roy Moore. Let's say he gets a John Merrill or a Tommy Tuberville or um, uh, Representative Byrne, uh, a more legitimate, uh, harder-to-beat candidate than Roy Moore. With the incumbency, can he hang on to, the elect, uh, to that seat? It will be tough, and I'll give you one simple reason. There was a poll recently that came out that showed Trump's popularity in all of the 50 states, one by one. Do you know what state Trump is most popular in? Alabama. Trump has a real following in Alabama. Now, uh, he, uh, um, Jones beat Roy Moore, and people said, oh, it looks like a Democrat can win Alabama. 
And my answer to that was a Democrat can win Alabama if his Republican opponent is a child molester. Now, I don't think the Republicans are going to do that again. But Trump is very popular in Alabama, more than Mississippi, more than any other southern state. Democrats are looking at states like Texas and Georgia and seeing opportunities, but they rarely see an opportunity in a place like Alabama. Yes. Um, I I was over at that Gadsden Mall food court about a month ago, and everything looked above board. So I I don't think there are any future Republican candidates lurking around that day. Um, I'm going to pass it to Catherine and then to Tim. Catherine? I'm going to let Tim go because you asked the Doug Jones question. That was what I was going to ask. Sorry, Catherine. It's okay. No, it's good. I, I want to ask you uh, about something else that you've written some about. Um, do you see any political solution out there right now that would walk us backward from this inexorable march toward total polarization of the two major political parties in this country? Well, I've been asked that question a lot. What would end the political war, which didn't start with Donald Trump. It started 50 years ago in the 1960s. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse with each decade. Trump is the one president who takes advantage of it. He saw the polarization of our politics as an opportunity. You know, there were four presidents before Donald Trump who promised to heal the division in the country. The first uh, President Bush said he would be kinder and gentler. Uh, Bill Clinton was a new Democrat. Uh, Second George Bush said he was a uniter Not a divider And Obama said there's no liberal America And no conservative America And he was proved wrong Uh, It's gotten worse and worse Some people, I think a third of Americans are saying We could be on the verge of a second civil war Can you imagine that? I think it's it's ridiculous to think of that But how it would possibly take place Uh, But in any case uh, It's gotten worse and worse People would ask me very often What would it take to heal the division? Four presidents tried. They all failed. I think the answer is, and it worked for one year, a serious national crisis. It could be an economic crisis. It could be a foreign policy crisis. And the reason why I can think it would work is that we had such a crisis. It happened on September 11th, 2001. The whole country pulled together. And I can tell you, I have the evidence that for one year, After September 2001, a majority of Democrats actually supported President George W. Bush because the country really was pulling together and the division was temporarily ended. Now, that came to a halt in September 2002 when President Bush rolled out his plans to invade Iraq and overthrow Saddam Hussein. And when he did that and when they started preparing for an invasion of Iraq, all the old divisions came rushing back. So the era of good feeling, if that's what you want to call it after 9-11, but the era of national reconciliation when we all pulled together, that lasted exactly one year. My feeling is it will take a crisis, God forbid, of that proportion, but some kind of of an urgency to really pull the country together. We also had a financial crash in 2008, and that elected the first African-American president of the country, which I can tell you, I grew up in the South, like apparently you, you people did as well. And I said on election night in 2008, I said, I can assure you, millions of Americans are saying tonight what I am saying. I never thought I'd live to see the day. Well, that was the consequence mostly 
of a financial crash where we thought we were going into another depression. It would take a crisis like 9-11, like the financial crash, for Americans really to pull together. Give us a crisis, and this country works very well. But without a crisis, I don't see any end to this division in the near future. Thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'll send it back to David to close the segment out. David? And normally I'll close it right out, but I I have a follow-up question that's related to your answer. About 10 years after 9-11, on a Sunday night, um, President Obama came on TV and said that Saddam Hussein had been killed. Um, No, Osama bin Laden. I'm sorry, Osama bin Laden, my bad. I'm I'm off tonight. I've... I could explain my week to weekend, but it's health crisis with my family and everything else, and it's just gotten me very little sleep. Um, but Osama bin Laden um, had been killed, and um, you know he's the one that was responsible for, for that uh, tragic event uh, a, a decade earlier. And, of course, I think a lot, most Americans across the political aisle were happy, but that didn't bring us together anywhere near a year. Why did good news not bring us together any longer than tragedy. Well, the good news was was something Americans welcomed, but you know what it did do? I think it played a big role in getting Barack Obama reelected. People were grateful to him for that. They said the president is doing his job. That wasn't really a crisis so much as it was the completion of the uh, the the uh, uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, the crisis didn't last. Uh, Americans didn't feel threatened uh, at the end of the uh, after the killing of Osama bin Laden the way they felt threatened during the financial crash or the way they felt threatened after 9/11. So I think there was an impact. It helped Obama get reelected, but I'm not sure it was big enough to call it a crisis. Okay. Um, with that, we'll we'll stop the questions. You have been most gracious to answer a myriad of questions. Um, but it, before you leave our listeners, if there's anywhere they can read you or read and uh, or see you on social media or what have you, kind of give our listeners that chance. Uh, I write now uh, regularly or occasionally, not regularly, for a publication called The Hill. Uh, you can find it on the web. Just look up The Hill. It's the newspaper of Capitol Hill. So it's read by members of Congress and their staffs. It's circulated on the web and gets a lot of attention around the country. But my pieces appear every couple of weeks in the Hill. Excellent. Well, thank you again for coming on our show. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Okay. Good to talk to you. Yes, sir. You too. That was Mr. Bill Schneider of George Mason University um, and the Hill publication. Uh, I believe I have read that column and need to look it up more regularly than I do because from years of watching him on Inside Politics and now getting the chance to to have him on our show, he is an incredible uh, political mind. Um, Well, let's kind of talk about another topic that, that we had thought about, one that's been pushed in front of us. It obviously is a news-making topic, but I have the question, is it a political topic? And that is the um, suicide of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, I obviously know it's news. He was rich. He did a heinous set of crimes, and it's one of those things like the Menendez brothers, like O.J. Simpson, 
it's one of those celebrity crimes, if you will, or maybe they become celebrities because they commit crime. And you know it's going to be in the news, no doubt about it. But for some reason, I see it linked on Political Wire. I see it in the politics section of CNN.com. I'm sure I could, if I looked around, I'd find 10 other instances of it being covered as political news. Catherine, um, my question to you is, do you think it's political news, or is it just crime slash celebrity news? Well, I don't think it's political news, but I think that other people, I think it may be categorized as that because he was um, uh, he is associated with a lot of political people. You know, there's pictures of him with Trump. There's, you know, talk about his friendship with or his association with uh, former President Bill Clinton and um, Bill Richardson and other political, um, you know, political celebrities or whatever you want to call it, or famous politicians. So I think that might be part of the reason that it gets, you know, put in with political news. But for me, I, I, I think of it as just, you know, sort of ordinary crime and celebrity. Yes. Uh, Tim, same question, and, and feel free to disagree. Do you think this is political news? Well, uh, while he was alive, I didn't think so much, but I think his death actually makes all of this worse. So, unfortunately, he has been thrust into the middle of national politics at the moment because of his association with high-powered uh, members of political life, uh, the fact that so many mainstream politicians in both parties now are coming forward with questions, uh, the conspiracy theorists are stirring the waters up, the Attorney General of the United States taking it on himself to go out and make a very public on television statement about all of this. We're in the Trump era, guys, and you know, it's an era where many, I guess, now believe that things are never as they seem. Everything is lies. The very government itself is a swamp. Uh, there's fake news out there. And so this has become a political hot potato, whether we want it to be so or not. And, yes, I'd, I'd say it's, 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 a, <laughs> it's a pretty big political story right now. Well, and actually, I think, Tim, you kind of said that the, in some ways the tail wagged the dog. And, and I wonder if this making it more political news gives rise and credence to more of these conspiracy theorists, these people on Facebook that mark them, their status lucky to not be suicided by Bill Clinton this weekend. Well, or people maybe I, on our side that claim something I, with Donald Trump or I, whatever. I, I mean, yeah. does it give them more – uh, ammunition to then discuss I, it all their crazy I, theories i was i was expecting you to bring that up and the answer is yes and a lot of the, the ammunition was given by the president himself who no one still has broken his twitter thumbs like i begged people publicly to do and he's retweeted that that baseless conspiracy theory that connects the Clintons to the suicide of who was that comedian Terrence K. Williams or whoever it is. 
so so he's drive he's driven a lot of that stuff himself and as soon as Trump tweeted it they went to parroting that stuff all over the social media all over Facebook I'm sure Catherine uh, along with me saw a lot of that stuff and so yes <laughs> the the conspiracy theorists are, are pouring gasoline on this fire and Trump's holding the match yeah Emmett, Emmett what's his face uh, probably has some VHS tapes He'll sell you off an infomercial about all this, um, <laughs> a la 1994 and Vince Foster. Uh, and, Tim, uh, I wonder, do you think if you went up and met the president, you could um, declare a thumb war uh, and the Secret Service would let it go, and that's how you could break the thumbs? I, I don't know. Um, well, let's keep moving and, and get to another topic, and, and that would be something we kind of alluded to with Mr. Snyder, and that would be the presidential race. Um and so I'm going to ask y'all the same question I asked uh, Mr. Snyder about the race. Um, we're used to it going round by round by round, kind of like a boxing match. And now it's like the Hunger Games. It seems like it's a free-for-all, and debates can happen anywhere, not just Des Moines and Manchester, um, New Hampshire and Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, they're national. The questions are national. It's not about ethanol prices and 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 whatever is the big story or topic du jour in um, New Hampshire. Uh, Catherine, do you see that there? Or does it feel like there's been a bit of a change this time? Um, I think we've been headed this way <clears throat> for a while. I mean, I think ever since we had 24/7 news. And they've had to fill it up. I think we've had more of a national um, ele- a national uh, general election. But I I say that, but I also think that as that, that as far as the media and our attention, it's um, more national. But I think that as far as voting and <clears throat> the work of the candidates, I think that still remains. It still remains very important to be on the ground and talking to people, especially in the you know early states where the winds can you know build momentum for the next state and the next state, and also national momentum. So I don't think it's a question of you know one has taken over and the other isn't as important. I think it's that both are really important, but in different ways. Yes, and of course, Tim, this weekend, could there have been anywhere more fun to be uh, or this whole week than the Iowa State Fair? I I wouldn't think so to try out all the fried stuff for the photo ops, to be able to get up and speak in front of large crowds of people, uh, and at the same time be pressing the flesh uh, in a one-on-one situation. There there wouldn't be anything quite like it. it. It's a must in presidential uh campaigning and and no there couldn't have been a a better place to be now as to your question about are we looking at a state-by-state thing or a national thing we're talking a lot about the national thing especially the polling because of the one thing on democrats minds right now and that is electability So the polls are telling us nationally what Democrats think about that and who they think that person is. 
that being said, it's still a state-by-state thing. Uh, A little bit of history here. In, in, In modern history, every candidate who has won both Iowa and New Hampshire out of the gate has gone on to win the nomination. And, and, and so I, I still believe that these states lead the way and, and the national follows. Yeah, and my next question is Elizabeth Warren just jumped up in the polls in Iowa. She is a neighbor and in the New Hampshire market by virtue of her uh, Massachusetts Senate seat. Is she the only candidate y'all see right now that could do the double play and win those two first two states? Catherine? Um, I, I, I can't say that. Okay. Tim, what do you think? Well, no, I, I don't. And I'm going to disagree with Bill Snyder a little bit here. Um, he, he, for some reason, thinks that Biden will do better in, in New Hampshire than in Iowa. I, I don't agree with that at all. I think Biden has to win Iowa. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, New Hampshire, is, is her her neighbor. Uh, Massachusetts politicians run very well historically in New Hampshire, and Bernie Sanders is right next door to New Hampshire as well. If Biden does not win Iowa, I certainly cannot see Biden winning New Hampshire. Uh, So I I think he loses Iowa, and he might be in a little bit of trouble, especially if Elizabeth Warren were to win both of those early states, then she could turn south and maybe really challenge Biden for the African-American vote in South Carolina. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, Joe Biden, he can win Iowa probably easier than New Hampshire, not that either are his best state. I mean, if he could rearrange the map, he'd probably have South Carolina go first. So would Kamala Harris. Um, But it would be like if he could win Iowa, then she wins New Hampshire. They turn down south. He wins uh, South Carolina, or she doesn't win it. Then it goes from there. And then I think the dropouts become important. Who drops out? Who drops out even before Iowa? Let's say um, John Hickenlooper's already dropped out. Let's say John Delaney, Tim Ryan, and um, Michael Bennett all drop out. Now, we know if we added all their uh, vote share up, it, it, it wouldn't even you know, break halfway through single digits. Nevertheless, those candidates would be, or those supporters would be more likely to support, um, you know, Joe Biden. If um, a a more progressive candidate or two drops out, those voters might be more inclined to support um, Elizabeth Warren. Now, I did hear something really interesting. I want to say it was the forecast with Harry Itton. Um, I want to try to give credit correctly. But they were talking about how second choice voting came in and everybody kind of looks at lanes but actually people that support joe biden first their second choice is bernie sanders and people that support bernie sanders first their second choice is joe biden and ideologically they're not the same but as far as known commodity they are the same Catherine, what do you make of that because in Iowa, your second, your third, and fourth choices do matter. Um, 
I, just, I, I have a hard time believing that poll, honestly. Um, but the thing about Iowa that nobody's mentioned tonight is that it's not just that you have to stand up. I'm, I'm totally not answering your question, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's not just that you have to stand up and vote. And, you know, you also have to stay there. Because if your candidate gets, goes out, like if you vote once and your candidate goes out, then you have to go vote for somebody. You don't have to. But in order for it to work the way it's supposed to work, then you have to you know, pick another candidate. And so it's a long night. That's the other piece of it that we didn't mention tonight. But I just can't see someone who is supporting Joe Biden going to Bernie. I would think they would go to... I don't know, Buddha judge or I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know because I just have a hard time understanding support for Biden. So I guess it's hard for me to picture who's supporting him. Well, and I think that we just assume because we follow um, politics so closely, we're like, well, don't you realize that ideologically the the continuum goes this way and a lot of folks are like, I know this person, this person. I could recognize those two out of a lineup, and who are those five? You know, they really don't know yeah, the, as many candidates. Uh, and as long as they show up in November, that that's uh, I, the key thing. Tim? I, I have another theory. I mean, what happens after New Hampshire, South Carolina, right? Who votes in South Carolina in big numbers? African-Americans, right? Yes. Yeah. So wouldn't the obvious beneficiaries, if if Joe Biden stumbles, be either Kamala Harris or Cory Booker and in the state of New Hampshire? I mean, excuse me, the state of South Carolina? Wouldn't, you know, I I would think they would be the obvious beneficiaries because right now Biden is leading heavily among African-American voters, and you know that that is really hurting both Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, especially Harris. But let's say this. Let's say in Iowa and in New Hampshire, neither of those two candidates finish in the top three. What is the odds that both of them will even make it to South Carolina? I would say pretty uh, slim to make it. Well, I've, I've said some things I believe that Biden has to win Iowa. I, I think he loses there and he's in trouble. I believe that either Warren or Sanders need to win New Hampshire. Uh, Biden wins both those two states. I, I, I think he probably runs the table. The others in the race that you're talking about, they need to stay among the top four or five in the early states. They simply need to outweigh the others and hope that the deck gets shuffled a little bit as the field narrows from what is now 23 people. The polls might look a lot different with, say, eight people in the race than with 23 people in the race. Those votes are going to go somewhere, right? And and the polls would have to shuffle. And that's huge, and I think that'll matter. Also, I could see this. Let's say Elizabeth Warren finishes second or third in Iowa, wins New Hampshire. Joe Biden wins Iowa, finishes third in New Hampshire, let's say. Um, uh, Kamala Harris is, let's say, aggregate of fourth. She stays in the race. 
uh, Booker doesn't really get much more than seventh in either state. He drops out. He endorses Elizabeth Warren because they have not an ironclad, but a pretty decent understanding that Elizabeth Warren's probably going to pick a man of color to be her running mate. I mean, you could see deals like this. She, he, he now endorses her for, for the primary and for South Carolina because he may, could be the odds-on uh, vice presidential nominee. I think you're going to get to see all these kind of things. And with so many candidates in the race, it'll be interesting to see when they drop out and who they well, endorse when they drop out and, and how it affects everything. Well, you know what? I want to I wanna uh, ask the last question of the night to Catherine because she is the most progressive of the three of us. Catherine, if both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders stay in the race long term and neither one drops out, do you see a way that either of them could win the nomination while the other one is still in the race? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I just don't see them both lasting that long. I well, I don't know how much money Bernie has, and I don't know how much how willing he is willing he is to spend it all. And same with her. Um, but I think, well, yes. I mean, I think that, that one of them could. I think my feeling is that Elizabeth Warren is uh, more likely to get the nomination than Bernie Sanders. I I think she's more electable. Um, I know I'm not crazy about that term because I don't know what it means anymore after 2016, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, I think that if they're both still in the, in the race that Elizabeth Warren could get the nomination. I'm not sure if Bernie could, I just can't see Bernie getting the nomination. He seems to me like too much of an outsider to be, our um, presidential nominee. Yeah, there's, there's a little right. bit of a Ralph Nader quality to him. Um, and Catherine, yeah. I 100% agree. She's the more electable, but he's by far, of all 20-something of them, the least likely to see and accept the handwriting on the wall. Um, right. You know, yeah. he could finish 10th on the first four states, and he'd still try to re- lead the revolution. Um, You're absolutely and, right. And so... Uh, th- that's why he may stay in. Although if he finishes tenth, the followers may leave the revolution, and and that would be uh, de facto enough. Well, a uh, great show tonight, folks. And until next week, it's been the Cudsey Vine. Good night, Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom?